0: Taking Stock
1: with Mandy Johnston.
0: Thanks to Skillness Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling.
2: This
3: is News Talk.
0: Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston, and I'll be keeping you company for the next hour with some great guests. Coming up on today's show, have you ever wanted to know how to spot the next big trend? Well, stay tuned. We have the author, Helen Edwards, on her new book, From Marginal to Mainstream. Edwards has examined 50 behaviours to understand why some products and brands take off and others don't. And someone who was on the margins, but this week an indictment catapulted him back into the mainstream. Donald Trump was in the dock and we'll be talking to Joe Miller of the Financial Times in New York. He'll be joining us to explain what happened in the courtroom this week and what we can expect next from the unprecedented developments in American politics this week. And if all of that is not enough, we'll be talking about UFOs, Chinese balloons and aerial mysteries with Jeff Wise, a scientific and aviation journalist about the strange goings on in American skies. We love hearing from you and you can email me at takingstock@newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. Now, first up today, my first guest believes keeping an eye on trends on the margins of society may provide marketeers with a way of tapping into the next big thing. Helen Edwards is a branding consultant and an award winning columnist focused on brand positioning and brand strategy. Her new book, From Margins to Mainstream, is out now and Helen joins me from London. Helen, you're very welcome. Hi, thank you. Now, Helen, spotting the next new thing, I guess, is where it's all at when it comes to marketing. Uh, But it's it's easier said than done. Uh, I'm very interested by the premise of this book. What did you set out to, to do?
2: Uh, Well, what I really set out to, I guess what I'd seen having worked with a lot of companies was that they were all looking for growth in the same places. And it tends to be kind of where they already are. It's like, can we do a new flavor? Can we do a new cap, you know, if if you're in products? Or can we do a service a bit like they do it? And it just struck me that breakthrough growth isn't going to come from those sort of small increments and that maybe breakthrough growth comes from raising our, our eyes from kind of looking at what we're doing and looking at the world around us and looking at what people are doing and the values that they've got and the way that they want to live their lives today. And, and I suppose I just, I was intrigued by the veganism story, mm. you know, how veganism had taken off and wanted to look at that and understand it a bit more and look for another, other examples. And, and it kind of fell into place after that. There are other examples and there are ways that you can understand these these kind of slightly strange even odd weird behaviours they seem weird now but they might not seem weird in a few years time
0: Yeah and, and veganism is a great example of how you can see something make that progression from the margins into the mainstream so uh, and and it's kind of you know, it's filtering throughout the book, that theme. But you obviously had to do quite a bit of research to to find out what makes a brand successful or even a product successful or even a movement successful. So uh, what type of research did you do or what did you look at?
2: We we looked at a lot and it is a we, you know, I did have a lot of people helping me on it. Uh, so We did a few things. So what, one of the first things we did was to closely follow the story of marginal behaviors that had come, become mainstream. So we looked very closely at veganism. We looked very closely at tattoos. We looked very closely at mindfulness, you know, which is very mainstream now, but hasn't always been. We also looked at, would you believe exercise for its own sake? Is it, is a mainstream behavior now that we don't even think about? could have been marginal but in the late 60s someone was arrested for jogging in america you know that's how marginal it was so we looked at these behaviors in detail we also went out and talked to people so we did national population surveys in the us and the uk we did focus groups 12 focus groups in the uk and the us and we interviewed people who are currently doing some of these practice pra- practices like we interviewed a microdoser and a free birther for example Um, And then we used all of that data. I worked with a professional research company called The Nursery, and they then did some statistical modelling using all of that research so that we developed actually a scale of behaviours on just 20 of them Mm. uh, to understand which ones might kind of emerge at the top, basically. So it was a lot of work in short.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I can only imagine. now. The, the types of behaviours that you talk about in the book um, some of us will recognise and others won't but what are the types of behaviours that shift things from the margins to the mainstream?
2: Yeah, well, the ones that floated to the top of our scales are, um, living off the sea. And that's not eating more fish. That's actually using kelp, which is a naturally grown protein, uh, in, in multiple ways. You know, you can eat it, but you can also make packaging out of it, for example. Uh, the other ones that people were interested in were things like, uh, extreme frugalism, so that's living very frugally in in your early years, so that you can stop working and live a freer life later. Polyphasic sleeping, which is sleeping in less, you know, less eight hours at night, and then we're awake all day, but following more of your own body rhythm and sleeping in short bursts, and that was really interesting because. Because of COVID, actually, COVID and working more from home meant that people could follow the more of the natural rhythms of their body and be awake when they wanted to be awake and working and asleep when they wanted to sleep. And also the whole focus on sleep in the modern world now. So polyphasic sleeping was one in particular that, that generated quite a lot of interest in the research that we did.
0: So that's about what might happen in the future. But let's look back at what has made trends successful in the past. So one of the uh, the interesting things I found in the book was uh, this notion of Zealots v cynics. So, uh, this idea that opposing forces are necessary to sort of provide some traction to get a, a debate going on something. Um, so, so, how does that actually uh, fit into the dynamic of changing something from the margins into the mainstream?
2: Yeah, I mean, those two opposing forces, as you called them, and you're completely right. The zealots versus the cynics, the sort of the the intense advocates versus the resistors, are almost like the base the base of what you need for mm. a marginal behaviour to potentially go mainstream. which sounds weird because it's like, if you've got loads of people resisting it, how is it ever going to go mainstream? But you need the intense advocates, the zealots, because if they're not there, then it's never going to get any traction. It'll just sort of drift away into nothing. Do you know what I mean? There'll be no sort of cultural heat around it. So you need those intense advocates who really believe in what they're doing. And, and they can be doing it for decades. I mean, mm. You know, veganism was around in the 40s. It didn't take off until 2017. And then you've got the resistors, the people who are opposed to them. And what's interesting about resistance is it's not all the same. You know, if people are resisting because they feel viscerally, emotionally against it, and they may may feel it's dangerous, so there are some people who felt that microdosing could endanger their lives, then that is a very difficult resistance to break down. But if people are resistant... But because it's impractical, but they're kind of curious. They're kind of like, God, that's interesting, but I'm not sure practically how it would fit into my life. Then that's a resistance that's more interesting because then you could see how it might make its way through to more mainstream popularity.
0: Mm. One thing that struck me as a... um an example of this was maybe the green agenda where years ago, somebody who was advocating sustainable living might have been seen as, you know, somebody who's politically on the margins from a consumer point of view on the margins. But now that's entirely mainstream factoring into businesses who have really strong obligations on the um, the ESG side of things. So it's 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 filtered right the way through to the corporate board levels, hasn't it?
2: yeah completely and actually, to be honest, we were really struck by a lot of the behaviors that we looked like we looked at were driven by a green agenda or a value about humanity that really mattered to people, so if you take something like um you know um living without money or uh, even something like insect protein or living off living off the sea those are driven by a desire for a more sustainable world and and so what you see within these behaviors is often the values of broader society kind of kind of coming through actually
0: yeah, and, and another thing that struck me when I started to think about this is it's a bit of a chicken and an egg question, you know. Uh, are trends evolving that drive product and brands and marketeers and advertising, or are we conditioned by advertising and marketing? So, did you did you have a look at this, or what side of the fence would you come down on?
2: I think, I think I suppose I'm I'm an optimist at heart in the sense that I believe that business does its best when it's genuinely creating value for humanity, rather than somehow manipulating humanity. And that's why I was so interested in looking at these marginal behaviours, because so many of them, they come from how people want to live their lives. They don't come from how pe- how we've been You know, driven by business to live our live our lives, they come from how people want to live their lives, and then what business can do is help more people live that way if they would like to by making it more mainstream, more acceptable. Um, And so, I guess I come down on the side of you know, business succeeds when it genuinely creates value for people and not the other way around. And so if you want to have that kind of business, then you have to start with people and who they are and how they want to live and serve them, actually.
0: Mm-hmm. And and this premise that the consumer-driven disruption is the thing that has the power to, to foster new industries, but that suggests that the consumer is, is always right and the consumer votes with their feet. But hasn't that always been the way?
2: Yes, I guess so. I mean, I think a lot of people would say, "But oh, but consumers don't know what they don't know. Mm. So if you've got like a tech disruption that consumers couldn't possibly manage and you bring it in, then they'll, you know, that's that's brilliant. That's a tech innovation. But I suppose what, and yes, that can... That can really help businesses grow, I suppose I am coming from the other side, saying consumers are just as powerful, you know that they can this is consumer driven disruption, consumers saying we want to live our lives in this way and and business can help us actually,
0: yeah, absolutely. well, look, if no one's buying a product, then the consumer is is ultimately the one who's right. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to news talks, taking stock. I'm Andy Johnston, and I'm speaking to Helen Edwards about her latest book from Margins to Mainstream. Helen, what are the other products that you looked at that were successful historically? Are there any of the big brands that we know of now that kind of started off on the margins that we now wouldn't even think of as being a, a marginal product or brand?
2: Well, the big one is probably one of the most successful brands in the world, which is Nike. Mm. So Nike was one of the was actually the first, one of the first running shoes. And it was created that one of the original shareholders of it was a guy called Bill Bowerman and he was an athletics coach and he went on a fact-finding mission to New Zealand and he was invited to a jogging club and he'd never even heard about this weird behaviour. I know it sounds so odd to be saying it now. <laughs> he'd never even heard about this weird behaviour in 1968. So he went along and he was completely knocked knocked out by how these uh, people were enjoying this sort of slightly strange activity that he'd never even thought of. And in fact, he couldn't keep up with a 70-year-old who'd had heart issues and never been an athlete. And he brought it back to the US and he did a piece of research at the University of Oregon, I think, to look at this new strange exercise routine and and they were overwhelmed by people wanting to try it and people just then went off and did it in their own way and if you think about it in the late in the sort of early 60s mid 60s this was so important because heart disease was such a big issue for america Mm. because we were we'd suddenly become so much more sedentary because of office work (laughs) you know and 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 so heart disease was a real issue and it just That was the beginning of the exercise revolution. And Bill Bowerman started the Blue Ribbon Sports Company with a miler that he'd trained a guy called Phil Knight and in 1971 they changed the name to Nike
0: Wow now I mean as you say the the thoughts of not you know having running clubs and people who run on a daily basis just for for, for you know for, for their own exercise not competitive or anything it's just unthinkable but like that revolution at that time was, was slow in coming is technology making disruption um, from a societal like behavioural point of view um, a much faster timeline now?
2: I think potentially partly technology and partly just life. We we all seem to live a lot faster than we now anyway. And I think technology does have that ability to, well, for us to be able to kind of see things so much faster. Mm. So if you take something like Wicca, which is modern day uh, witchcraft, which is very, um, I mean, it's massive on, on TikTok. So it's a young, the younger generation are really into it. And I think it's more about its values around spirituality and modern feminism that is really appealing but you know it's huge on on which talk has something like 40 billion you know views um, and I think modern technology and particularly social media means that we we actually just see more of mm. these behaviours than we would ever have had access to before and then actually technology can help them come more to the fore so quantified self you know that practice of like daily measuring your health and physical statistics that came very high on our scale and that is driven by technology it will be technology that brings that to the mass population and, and if you think about how health care systems are under so much pressure now that's probably going to be a good thing Mm. okay so just um, to finish off
0: then Helen can
2: you give us some top tips
0: of what to look out for what could uh, take off in 2023
2: 2023 so that's this year well I've got a lot of heart for insect protein
3: right Um,
2: uh, yes, I know. A bit yuck. And in fact, when we showed it to people in our research, a lot of people just went, oh, my goodness, that's disgusting. How but you, could
0: you- you, you're seeing it on supermarket shelves already,
2: well exactly but it's not doing very well because when we showed some of our uh respondents some of the products that are available like kind of crunchy critters they're all like oh no i just would not you Mm. know that's disgusting horrible even though people know it's really sustainable and it's great protein i think all it will take is for a big brand to get it right and in fact in our research one person a couple of people said do you know what if if nor did it or one of them, I probably would. And I think it's all about a big brand giving the reassurance to consumers, not calling it crunchy critters, because that's off-putting from the start. You know, calling it something like original protein or clean protein and using it as an ingredient. I think there's a real opportunity to get insect protein right for the world.
0: Helen, have you tried any crunchy critters yet?
2: Well, I did try one of the bars as part of the research. And I've got to say, I was in the camp of this is disgusting, but I got over myself, actually. <laughs> Although interestingly enough, there is a pet food called of Pet Food who use it, for, uh, who use insect protein. And I couldn't bring myself to give it to my dog. <laughs> I did eat myself, but it didn't feel right to give it to the dog,
0: okay. which is weird. Well, I- Okay, Helen, well, we'll watch out for that trend in 2023. Uh, But thank you so much for taking the time uh, to go through the thoughts with us today. That was Helen Edwards on her new book, From Marginal to Mainstream. Helen, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. After the break, strange goings on over American skies. What do they tell us about the state of aerial military manoeuvres in the US? We'll discuss after this short break. You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnson. Now, earlier this year, a suspected Chinese spy balloon was shot down over Washington. And since then, officials have struggled to explain a spate of aerial objects, sparking conspiracy theories and a diplomatic furore with Beijing. Joining me now to untangle some of the mystery is Jeff Wise, who's writer for New York magazine and scientific and aviation journalist. Jeff, you're very welcome to Taking Stock
3: yeah well thanks thanks for having me on um th- this was uh, quite a mystery quite a quite a lot of excitement uh, back in february when this uh this mysterious object was drifting over the united states um but uh, it doesn't seem to have really recurred since
0: no, and we'll get into all that at, uh, in a moment, but I, I just, uh, I might mention to listeners, might recognise your name and indeed your voice from a very famous Netflix documentary, which is on at the moment, MH370, about the the plane that disappeared. And you're a significant voice in that documentary. Um, you might just give us a little flavour of your involvement in that story. And if you've been surprised by how prolific it has been uh, in recent weeks, I think it was number two right across the world in the week that it was released.
3: That's right. That's right. I mean, this is a mystery that has been obsessing a lot of people, including myself, for nine years now. Um, I remember vividly when it first happened. And and. It was such a remarkable story because these pennies kept dropping, you know, first this plane disappeared and then it turned out that it, it had turned back and flown back over Malaysia and showed up on Malaysian military radar. And then Inmarsat got involved, it turned out they had six hours of data. It was all completely mind blowing at the time. Um, and we haven't, we still haven't found it. I mean, it, it's funny because I remember at the time thinking, wow, saying to, saying to the other people, I was going on CNN at the time talking about it and, and saying to the other um aviation journalists who were covering this, like, can you believe it's been a whole week and they still haven't found the plane? And then um, we would say, can you believe it's been a whole month? All year. Uh, now it's been nine years and and we're really no closer. So it's kind of an amazing, uh, it, it's just a fascinating case. And, you know, the the, the, the more you dig into it, the stranger it gets, and that's something that it's, it's kind of hard to really convey to people without getting really into the details. Mm. And and the the the, not, the Netflix documentary has had a remarkable response, but I mean, in, it, it's about four hours of TV, and they that's only enough time to really skim over the surface.
0: Mm. Well, I've watched all of it, and it is a remarkable story of human suffering at its core, really, mm. but also the conspiracy around it the theories, mathematical and otherwise, that you all you put forward. So on this bank holiday weekend, if you haven't watched it, I would, would highly recommend it uh, uh, to, to our listeners. Um, Jeff, now back to, to what we originally asked you on to talk about. Right. Um, so just give us a flavour of what has been happening in the US over these uh, spyware, as they're called now. Um, there was that incident over Washington. Has anything else happened?
3: Well, uh, it's, there's quite a whole saga to unpack. I mean, the larger context is that, you know, since really the fifties, there's been this kind of cultural manifestation of the idea of UFOs, Mm. right? Um, there's been this idea that there's flying saucers and the government knows about it, but it's been covering it up. And, um, you know, there's, it, it's really mainstream culture. It's like, you know, the X-Files was a whole series that was sort of based on this kind of idea. And then in um, more recent years, uh, the, the government actually set up its own uh, investigatory agency to look into these claims. And the, these uh, short videos were released that showed um, what appeared to be these unidentified phenomenon that were uh taking uh, they were seen in the air near US Navy exercises and um, and, the, and and so this kind of seemed to confirm what had been previously disregarded as the wild conspiracy theories um, so that was the background for then it turns out that there's these mysterious objects floating over the United States and a lot of people are saying okay this is true there's definitely UFOs aliens are visiting us extraterrestrials all this um, and other I would say, In my personal estimation, more sober um, analysts are looking at this and saying, okay, what's happening is that we're in this new environment where there is cheap, readily available technology, a lot of sophisticated potential um, adversaries, most notably China, um, who are capable of putting up drones, high-altitude balloons, various ways of spying on us, um, and this whole UFO Cultural fervor is really all about the the U.S. military and intelligence agencies trying to change the attitude of its members to sort of say, if I see something weird hovering in the night sky, I'm not just going to cover it up because I don't want to be labeled as a conspiracy theorist, but I'm going to report it because it might actually be somebody actually spying on us. Mm. Um, And this is like kind of (laughs) complicated. Forgive me for having gone into such detail. But the upshot is that. The entire United States, and I think the world, since you're asking me about it, was like, we're like looking on somewhat agog at the uh, uproar that was caused by this, this thing that was floating over the United States, you know, for the, over the course of a week, no one really knew what it was. It was sort of speculated to be Chinese military surveillance, um, and then people saying, well, how come we can't do anything about it? How come the Biden administration is so powerless and weak that they're just we're just, you know, being overflown? Uh, and eventually they did shoot it down and, and that kind of noise calmed down. But um, it seems like a lot of things are, are happening here culturally and scientifically, technologically. Um, but I think the, the, the short way to put it is that we live in an era of drones and balloons, and the technology is changing quickly, and we're still trying to figure out how to deal with it.
0: Mm. So this, this programme is, is called Taking Stock and what we like to do is delve deeper into sort of the stories that are making the news give it a bit of space and time to see if there's any reflection to actually explain things to, to, to people. So just, they, they did shoot this aircraft down. Has there been any more information about what it is and what's causing all this aerial activity in America? What are the government and the military saying about it?
3: First of all, I love the fact that that's what your show is about that is all too lacking in our society. We we live in a world that's really complicated and things are changing really quickly. And we just kind of get the surface level, you know, two second reaction. And then we move on and mm-hmm. like never, ne- nothing ever gets figured out or understood. So, you know, kudos to you for the, this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Secondly, um, you know, there was just a, a, a a report on CNN in the last few days that was saying that government officials have confirmed that it was a US military surveillance balloon and um, And that they were in fact collecting intelligence from US um, military bases and I wrote I wrote about this for New York magazine kind of diving in deep with some of the, the people that make balloons like this And in the last 20 years the technology has really developed that allows vastly greater capability from a high-altitude balloon now in the old days meaning like pre year 2000 um, High-altitude balloons, you know, which were sort of hydrogen or helium and they were um the, the, the gas could leak out and so you, you couldn't have a balloon that was that would be up there for more than a couple of days They figured out a way with new materials to create a balloon. It's called a super pressure balloon and so basically as it heats and cools over the course of a day and night um, it keeps its shape. It doesn't let the gas leak out. It can do that without exploding, which is the hard part um, and so because you are containing the gas You can control it. Uh, You can control your altitude. You Mm. can go up and down. And because of the way the winds work, that means you can control more or less, not perfectly, but you can control more or less where you are, where you're going. And so you can stay up for a long time and you can stay over a certain place. So this balloon apparently was kind of doing figure eights high in the stratosphere. Mm. Um, And that's pretty cool because when you talk to experts in surveillance um, it's really valuable to be able to have a consistent long lasting uh, look at something you can see patterns of activity you know you can um, you know wait for whatever you're you're looking at to say take the cover off if they're trying to hide them what they're doing um, and so and the other thing that's that, that is very valuable about these balloons is that You know compared to an aircraft they're very small in terms of radar signature and what's even better In terms of avoiding detection is that they're not moving very fast Mm. and why this matters is because the way that we, We all know that radars work by sort of shining electromagnetic magnetic radiation out into the atmosphere like a sort of flashlight and then detecting the reflection but when you shine it out, you 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 you'll you'll hit things like airplanes and balloons, but you'll also hit things like trees and clouds and rainstorms and birds, and you'll get mostly clutter. Mm-hmm. You'll get mostly stuff that you don't really care about. So how do you distinguish the thing that you want to see from the thing you don't want to see? Well, there's this um, phenomenon where if you if you shine a uh, radiation at something that's moving very quickly the reflection will come back at a different frequency that's called doppler shift and if you you can filter your return for frequency and you'll only see things that are moving and so that's how it that so this really makes it a lot easier to see those enemy bombers that are zooming yeah. in at seven hundred miles an hour yeah
0: so I just wanted to come come in here um about one of the explanations yeah. just to kind of sure. bring it back up to um, pedestrian level that I can understand. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Well no no, it's fine. Uh, it's just that one of their explanations was look, we've changed the the, brand, the bandwidth, the frequency, and so right. we're detecting a lot more stuff. And I have to be honest That's with what you, I'm talking about. Yeah. That's when,
3: exactly what I was just talking
0: about. When they're explaining this they say that there's debris from satellites, there's bits of balloons up there. It sounds like the sky is a bit of a, a junkyard that they they're picking up all these bits and pieces now that we wouldn't have known about is that a credible explanation um, or do you think it's just something that the state and the military are doing to try and paper over more geopolitical concerns about chinese spying or russian spying
3: no i i mean i the explanation makes sense. Mm. Um I mean it they might also be papering over other concerns <laughs> that they don't want you to think about. But the whole thing about opening the frequency band gate, that's what I'm talking about. Okay. Once you start looking once you once you look for not just things that are going fast, but also things that are going slow, there's a lot of stuff that's going slow. Yeah. And so basically you are they're picking well, there's up a lot of wheat and chaff. Not yeah. a lot of chaff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that does kind of make sense. But But what what
0: does this all tell us about... the US military and their surveillance tactics. I know you've written and spoken about uh, the legacy of the Cold War and that's how the American defence system is basically constructed. But there's new technologies, much more agile they need to be, as we've seen uh, in the Ukraine war. Um, But what's your assessment of the ability of uh, the US to to move to a more agile defence system?
3: Yeah, I mean the U.S. military is one, probably a remarkably non-agile organization. I mean, you've got millions of people in this rigid bureaucracy. Um, you know, I think culturally, the people who get attracted to occur in the military aren't sort of free thinkers mm-hmm. by nature. Um, not to be prejudicial. Um, it takes time for um, the ship to turn around. Um, having said that, the U.S. I think has done a pretty impressive job of keeping up with the, um, you know, the technological changes that have been underway. If mm. you see, the, you know, the disaster that Russia got itself into in Ukraine, where they're not doing a very good job at all of dealing with this new, you know, very, um, for instance, drone heavy, um, environment mm. that we live in. Um, it's challenging. I mean, it, 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 you can't, I think in military terms, you don't do well or poorly in absolute terms. You do well or poorly in relation to your adversary. Mm. You just have to beat your enemy. You don't have to be you know, good in absolute terms. You just need
0: terms. to be faster than the person behind you.
3: Yeah. And <laughs> frankly, I mean, I think Russia has really... Um, been demoted in the general estimation of the world as being competent. I mean for a long time Russia was considered you know the one of the best in the world in terms of like all these things like jamming and electronic warfare um and surveillance and so forth and they've they've shown to be very poor they maybe can make some good equipment but they're very poor at integrating it all together into a into a system that functions Mm. um whereas china you know we're looking at taiwan and i think people are thinking is china going to take over taiwan in the way that russia tried to take over ukraine um and we are i think people are generally uh, now anyway much more um you know, give a lot more credit to Chinese technological capabilities than Russian at the at, at present time. So we'll, you know.
0: We'll see. Um, just finally, then, Jeff, to finish off, um, I just want to get your sense of are the government there attempting in any way to explain these aerial phenomena with the, the American public. Has any of this done anything to resurrect those suspicions you spoke about earlier about a long held belief that exists in the US about the government having more knowledge on estri- extraterrestrial activity than, than they tell the public? What's the, what's the public mood on it?
3: I think the public mood overall is that that the government has essentially confirmed that UFOs are real. I personally don't (laughs) agree with that assessment, but I think that's kind of, you know, I talk to my editors and stuff, and I just think there's this general sense that, um, yeah, there's a lot more going on than was previously acknowledged and the government has sort of fessed up. I don't, again, I would emphasise, I don't think that's actually correct, but I think that's the cultural, that's where the needle is culturally.
0: Okay. Well, Jeff, listen, thank you so much for taking the time to explain that very complicated issue with us today and to, to share your views on it. And again, I can recommend to anybody who wants something to look at this weekend, that documentary on Netflix is called MH370. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you. It's been my pleasure.
0: You're listening to Taking Stock on News Talk with me, Mandy Johnston. Up next, Donald Trump is in the dock. What happened this week and what's likely to happen next? After the break, we'll hear from Joe Miller of the Financial Times. He was in the room where it all happened. We'll be back after this short break. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson. Now, finally today, unprecedented, bizarre and unorthodox are all words that are often used when describing Donald J. Trump to discuss what happened in court this week and what might lie ahead for the former president. I'm delighted to be joined again now by Joe Miller from the Financial Times in New York. Joe, you're very welcome. You've had a busy week.
1: I have indeed, but good to be with you.
0: So, Joe, you're the legal affairs correspondent for the Financial Times. I want to start off by asking you where does someone like you watch those proceedings?
1: Uh, Well, it's a good question. I did not know uh, where I would be watching these proceedings from uh, until uh, 8 o'clock in the um, morning on Tuesday. Um, And that's because a queue had started to form the day before at 3 p.m. in the afternoon outside the courthouse um, for um, essentially seats in the courtroom itself or in some of the overflow courtrooms um, that were set up for journalists. And court officials just told us they would give out credentials at at 8 a.m. the next morning. Um, I was not committed enough to camp out all (laughs) night and arrived at about 5 a.m. in the morning. I was 106 in line, but um, thankfully that was enough to get me in. Um, actually to get me into the courtroom but I chose to sit in the overflow because there were cameras that were facing Donald Trump and his lawyers and I could see their faces so I thought that would be more useful than seeing the back of their heads. Um, so I was just next door.
0: Wow, so it's as, it's as simple as that. It's not just because you're from one of the biggest newspapers in the world, it's a good old queue like we'd queue for Bruce Bruce Springsteen tickets.
1: Indeed. Actually, Bruce Springsteen is playing in uh, New York at the moment, I believe. And um, it sometimes seemed like there was some kind of uh, rock concert happening in downtown Manhattan. But no, it was just an arraignment of a uh, criminally charged president or ex-president, rather.
0: And what was the feeling like in Manhattan as all this was going on? Was there an air of, uh, I suppose, uncertainty about what might might go down as a result of, of the case happening there?
1: Uh, Well, certainly there was a very heavy police presence. Uh, For most of the morning, uh, I could hardly uh, hear my editors over the phone when I was talking to them because of the helicopters that were uh, circling above and people um, shouting through foghorns uh, either – Pro or anti-Trump uh, protesters, um, and thousands—if not tens of thousands—of police and other law enforcement officers were deployed to downtown Manhattan. Large swathes of the of the downtown area were cordoned off. But in truth, um, the protests or the unrest that the NYPD feared and um, security officials feared never really materialized. I would say in total, there were probably maximum 300, 400 people who came to the small park opposite the courthouse to protest either for or anti-Trump. Sometimes tensions were heightened, but um, it never really got anywhere close to any serious violence um, and this is a, a far far cry from the sort of thing we saw in uh you know the january 6th riots where those people came out in in their droves to, to support donald trump um it really was down to a sort of an eclectic mix of um you know quite enthusiastic supporters mm. or um uh, you know, the tractors of the president or the ex-president.
0: Now, you explained that you chose to sit in an anteroom room looking at the cameras that were facing Donald Trump. And we spent hours listening to uh, American news anchors trying to decipher the body language of a still photograph of Donald Trump. But what did you feel? And it's very different when you're seeing the the. The action happened live. So, tell us a little bit about his demeanor. What did you um, take from his his presence in that course? Did you feel he diminished in any way? Or, or what was your assessment of how he was himself?
1: Well, you know, it's really interesting. You know, I'm a legal correspondent here in New York, um, and uh, Donald Trump has been the central character in many a courtroom drama over the the last few decades. You know, ever since he he uh, joined his father's real estate business i believe in the late you know 1960s and um you know he is very rarely in these proceedings is very rarely in court he's sort of this absent character who can say what he likes and you know and um tweet what he likes uh, and now these days he uses his own social media platform to to attack uh, you know prosecutors or or the the legal proceedings but there he was you know flanked by you know his lawyers Uh, And he looked like a sort of humble character, really. Um, Somewhat reminded me of a sort of chastised child who'd been told to behave and sit there and not say very much. I think he said something like, 12 words um, during um, the whole uh, proceeding including not guilty and he responded to one of the judges questions with i do your honor which is interesting that he you know uh, was being deferential to a judge he um, lambasted on social media just hours earlier Um so it was really amazing that you know even someone like donald trump who's who's bombast we've got so used to over these years you know, he he was sort of subdued by the weight of, of American justice. And, you know, it, it really is something to behold.
0: Mm. Now, let's on, move on to the the charges. Um You've written many pieces this week. One of them you wrote asked, can Alvin Bragg, the district attorney, make his unprecedented case against Donald Trump stick? Many people critical uh, that the case as presented is too thin. Was there anything in those 34 charges that you saw that surprised you?
1: Um, actually, there wasn't, and I think that is the surprising element in that. Um, for, for for many many months, we've known that a grand jury was hearing testimony um, about something to do with Donald Trump, an indictment to do with Donald Trump, and we we knew that Stormy Daniels, an, an adult um, film star, had um, testified. We knew that Michael Cohen. Um, the uh, president's former lawyer, who is um, supposedly uh, the person who paid Stormy Daniels this one hundred and thirty thousand dollars in in hush money, that he had also testified before um, this grand jury. But there was general disbelief among legal commentators and people watching the sort of Trump universe that this could be the only. Um, avenue that the prosecutors were exploring, it seemed not to be strong enough on its own to bring charges. So a lot of us thought, you know, maybe there would be other Crimes in this indictment, there would be you know perhaps um, the equivalent of another civil case that's being brought against Donald Trump um, for uh, overestimating the value of his assets and his his real estate portfolio and getting more favorable loans as a result. Uh, we thought some of that might be in there, but really it was just about these payments, these reimbursements made in two thousand and seventeen to Michael Cohen for paying um, Stormy Daniels to keep quiet in the um, days just before the uh, um, election, the presidential election in uh, in 2016. And um, you know that in itself is incredibly surprising that the uh, prosecutors decided to go ahead with just these charges. And the reason there's so much skepticism around there is that this was a very thin indictment. The indictment mm. just laid out these 34 felony counts and did not tell us how they came to arrive at being felony counts, because Falsifying business records, which is the underlying charge, is a misdemeanor in the state of New York, which is a a minor crime. It can only be elevated to a felony if it was done to um, either hide or in service of another crime. And crucially, uh, the district attorney's office has not told us what that underlying crime is. um, Mm. And that's why there's so much skepticism out there.
0: Mm. So the failure to identify Um, the rationale for elevating it to a felony is really the reason why uh, there's so much scepticism around it now but that doesn't disbar the fact that it could be a tactic on their part I guess but in the press conference that the district attorney gave after the arraignment took place he did refer to new evidence about more payments beyond the 130000 that you've mentioned to Stormy Daniels any idea filtering out about what those might be?
1: Yes, so that was quite interesting because we had this indictment which was unsealed um, you know, moments after the hearing ended. And as I say, that didn't contain anything other than the, the 34 counts relating to these payments, um, repayments to Michael Cohen. But then we had a press conference in which um, Alvin Bragg, the, the district attorney, talked about a conspiracy. Um, he talked about, um, he may not have used the word conspiracy, but what he was um, talking about seemed to amount to a conspiracy. Um, he talked about these catch and kill um, payments that were made on behalf of Donald Trump's campaign, not just to Stormy Daniels, but also to a former Playboy model who had alleged an affair with Donald Trump and a former doorman at um, Trump Tower, which is um, Donald Trump's residence in in New York, who uh, had some unflattering information about Donald Trump and was paid to suppress that. But that was all noticeably absent mm. from the indictment itself, so we don 't know why these facts have been you know put out there by the district attorney 's office. It could be that this is how they are going to argue motive and they're going to try and explain you know why Donald Trump would want to have disguised these payments um, They were all repayments to Michael Cohen It was part of a broader scheme. It's all very curious at the moment because we've got these little tidbits of information but we don't know how they relate to the theory of the case.
0: Yeah, definitely a long way to go on this. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson and I'm speaking to Joe Miller from the Financial Times in New York about the arraignment of Donald Trump this week. Now, um The other investigations uh, that you very kindly outlined for us before uh, Christmas, there are many uh, other charges uh, that are being investigated, Donald Trump is being investigated for. What do you think is the next likely investigation that might come up for him?
1: If I know, if I, if I knew, I'd have the the scoop of a decade probably. Um, but um, you know, it's anyone's guess really. I would say, you know, looking at um, the subpoenas that have been issued and um, you know the processes that we know about in public, it seems that the investigation. Uh, in Georgia, which is uh, to whether there was uh, there was an f- interference um, by Donald Trump um, after the uh, 2020 election him you know trying to pressure officials to overturn uh, that result um, that grand jury uh, process there uh, has been taking place um, we don't know if or indeed when um, charges will be brought, but certainly from what we know publicly that seems the most likely but from a legal standpoint uh, many legal commentators out there will say that the strongest case that's still uh, you know possible Um, And that the one that the Department of Justice would probably um, be on the surest footing to bring is the so-called January 6th case, the insurrection case. And there was, of course, this uh, House committee that looked into the events leading up to the riot on Capitol Hill and issued this uh, quite damning report about how um, they felt that uh, Donald Trump had played a a vital role in essentially inciting um, that riot, that report was handed over to um, prosecutors, uh, to the Department of Justice. There's a special counsel looking into that. We don't know when or if they will bring charges. All I can say is that people who have studied that report and looked into the events, uh, legal experts think that is a particularly um, strong case. And what's very interesting about that case, um, unlike the DA's one, um, and unlike uh, Georgia and, and others that are in train, is that um, there is nothing to stop someone who has been criminally charged from running for president. Um, Donald Trump's campaign, um, if anything, might be boosted by the DA's case. Mm. Um, it seems to have um, you know, got a bit of a poll boost, uh, but he's certainly um, not barred from running for office. Uh, there is one constitutional limit on someone running for office and that is if they are an insurrectionist so um bringing um charges of insurrection by the you know DOJ over the Jan 6 uh, events that could be you know a far far weightier indictment and a far far more meaningful um, sort of um, legal jeopardy for um, for Donald Trump, if and when that comes.
0: Mm. And when we spoke the last time, you did say that this case, the, the New York federal case, was probably the weakest of all four in terms of, of uh, the implications for Donald Trump going forward. Um, can I just ask you about this case uh, now? What happens next in terms of witnesses and juries? What's the timeline uh, for the New York case?
1: So the timeline in this case is different to, I I would say, probably any other, um, you know, bog standard criminal case in in, uh, New York County, which is uh, where it's been brought in that um, we won't have another court hearing as in an in-person hearing until December. Um, because the judge has essentially um, allowed for quite a lot of time for the defence team to, fire, to, to file, rather motions, uh, and they can file motions um, for a bunch of different things, asking the court to do a bunch of different things. Um, primarily, they will be filing motions to dismiss the case in its entirety. Uh, And they will be doing that based on a legal analysis of the indictment, of the statement of facts, and also an analysis of what the prosecutors have in their back pockets, because they have to turn over what's called discovery in the next few weeks. So they have to turn over basically all the evidence that they have gathered um, over the past however many months um, and during the grand jury process. And once they are presented, once Trump's defense team are presented with all of that, they can file motions based on what they now know about the background to those charges, trying to get them thrown out. But they have until August 8th to file those. Mm. Um, And um, I don't see them being in a particular big rush to file them because they would want to have as many facts as possible before they did so. And then the government has about six weeks or so to respond. And then there's no decision by the judge on those motions until, you know, sometime before that December hearing. So it, it could be that, you know, outside of Donald Trump's you know social media feeds and his press conferences, etc., we won't be hearing that much about the substance of this case for quite a while.
0: Mm. And those social media feeds indeed were raised, I think, quite unexpectedly by the judge uh, during the week. Uh, tell us a little bit about what he said to Donald Trump and whether or not Donald Trump subsequently paid any attention to these is was played out in in Mar-a-Lago later that evening.
1: Yes, so I, I mean, I think I said earlier that in in some ways the proceeding, the arraignment, um, was was somewhat similar to you know an everyday kind of criminal arraignment at that court. The way in which it wasn't was that prosecutors handed the judge a dossier. Of Donald Trump's uh, recent social media posts um, lambasting the the judge, the the court, the prosecutors Alvin Bragg, um, there was a reference to uh, a post uh, which uh, Donald Trump reposted, uh, which had a, a montage of two images, one of which was him holding a baseball bat, and the other was you know Alvin Bragg's head. And prosecutors did not seek what's called a gag order at this time, which is which would basically order uh, that be the court ordering Donald Trump not to talk about this case in public but essentially uh, raised serious um, concerns and and the judge seemed receptive to that and he um reminded the the former president's attorneys to ask him to refrain from making statements likely to incite violence or or civil unrest and um he said while he wouldn't seek a gag order you know he he, he sort of Motion towards the idea that at some point he could get to that to that stage, and you know such uh, sanctions would uh, be appropriate. Um, Donald Trump's lawyers in court seem to suggest that that was you know something they would communicate to their client. Uh, it doesn't seem to have worked though, because you know hours later. Um, he went on the attack again um against the the, the court the justice system uh, the judge etc cetera, etc cetera. um so he doesn't seem to have moderated his language at all um and the judge is now and the court is now in a very difficult uh, very difficult position because uh, even if it were to impose a gag order um which is is very rare and judges do do not like to do that because it interferes with the you know defendant's uh, rights to 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 speak out um they could. The court could maybe issue a gag order against Donald Trump, but could it issue a gag order against people not involved in the case, like Eric Trump or, or Donald Trump Jr., uh, you know, Donald Trump's sons, or other people um, involved in the campaign who are saying similar things? Um, it's almost impossible to imagine a, a court doing that, and so uh, it looks like the uh, you know Donald Trump's. <laughs> um, in attempts to kind of uh, cry foul um, you know, will not be restrained mm. in, in any meaningful way for quite a while. No,
0: there's one Donald Trump inside the court and a very different one outside the court. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for your fascinating insights this week. Uh, but for now, we'll have to leave it there. That was Joe Miller from the Financial Times in New York. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Always a pleasure.
0: Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and why we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings. We're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. If you want to get in contact with us about any of today's items, you can email us at takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Stephen Daunt researching and Hugo da Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae's up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On the Record. So from taking stock with me Mandy Johnston. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day and have a lovely Easter.